When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Do you smell something in the air? Oh, it's me. (laughs) I really smell today. I really stink because it's our weekly Clark Stink segment. Can't wait to kick that off in a minute because I learned so much from you that improves the advice and guidance and answers I give on this podcast. And I also want to talk about the ups and downs of the stock market and how I want you to think about it, how you should handle what's coming, which uh, the euphemism used is we're in an era of volatility. But without further ado, it is time for Clark Stinks. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, let's kick it off, as you said, with this one. A listener asked if he has to claim his son on his tax return or if his son, 11 years old, has to file a separate return after earning money as a photo double on a Netflix series. This is the second time I've heard you misleading parents into thinking their minor child has to file a return in order to make a Roth contribution. There is no rule requiring a return if a contribution is made in a minor's name. Only the earned income is required, and that's from L. Um, Actually, it depends on how much a child earns, and there's a threshold. This year, it's pretty high. It's over $12,000, basically, is where a return has to be filed. So it depends on what part-time is, how much money a kid is earning. And I've neglected to ever say that because I've liked the return for a kid because then there's documentation record showing they earn money and a parent just didn't try to break the rules and put money in a Roth when a kid had no earnings. But yeah, technically you don't have to file that return. And I appreciate that, L that you pointed out that not always and not necessarily does a kid have to file a tax return in order to be eligible to put money in a Roth IRA. This one's from Steve and he thinks this is funny. Dear Clark, there is a T in one of your favorite words, gigantic. Ha. How how do I say gigantic? Oh, I did. I did. I I don't say the T, do I? Okay, that's funny. (laughs) On a recent show, for the second time, you stated that those who worked from home would lose out on promotions, unlike those who went into the office for work. I work for a large college, and most of our workforce were remote for the last two years. A few months ago, a large list of promotions was circulated to staff, and most everyone on it hadn't been to the office in two years. We worked just as hard remotely, if not harder, and kept the place running. The management has gone from being skeptical of remote work to being so sold on it that our remote worker status is now permanent. It looks like we finally can work efficiently without the constant distraction of the office. 
Promotions will still happen as they did this year. Being present means getting your work done and on time, not showing your face. And that's from Pete. Pete, thank you. And I probably said it three or four times too, because it's the hybrid work environment I'm talking about. If everybody's working from home, everybody's on an equal footing. But if you have people that are present in the office where people now in more and more places have the option of coming in, the people that are present in the office, I believe just human nature being what it is, and maybe I'll be proved wrong over time, that those people have a better chance for promotion and raises and better raises than people who are never seen in the office. And again, maybe I will prove to be wrong about that. Clark, you had a second chance to get it right on the question about I-bonds, and you still didn't answer the question. The original question was whether it's worth it to wait until new interest rate period, about a month away, to make the purchase, assuming it would be going up. I think what the question was getting at was if they purchase an I-bond now and the rate goes up a month later, are they stuck at the lower rate for the next five months, or does their rate go up when the rate changes a month later? Are you locked in at the purchase rate for six months from the time of purchase? P.S. I purchased I-bonds last year at around 3% a month or so before the rate went up to 7%. So I'm keenly interested in this answer as well, Scott. Yes, Scott, you are right. When you buy them, that controls your earning period. And then the next earning period, you move to higher. The reality is the I-bonds for a good long while, even though you're only getting the computation of this odd formula of the rate of inflation, you get that rate for each six-month period, you get that current rate for a period that you can hold up to 30 years. Minimum holding period that forces you to lose no period of, of interest is five years. You're allowed to sell them after a year. But your 3% followed by 7% followed by what now looks like is going to be 9%. I mean, this is great stuff that people are going to earn. And so the Series I savings bonds are not the deal they were long ago where you got the inflation rate plus an additional bonus interest rate. Now you're just going to get the inflation rate. But you compare that to what you can earn on savings elsewhere, it's fantastic. I need to explain this more in detail on a future podcast because this is going to be a great opportunity for a while to come. I love you, Clark, but you gave some bad and sad advice to the guy who lamented that he had to simply endure the pain and hits on his credit after divorce because his ex-wife is late with car loan payments that are in his name. The guy needs to go back to court and submit a petition to modify or a petition to enforce the divorce decree and explain to the court what is happening. If the decree said that the ex must pay and the guy must keep the loan in his name... An insane term, in my opinion, is it reeks with injustice and liability. The guy can tell the judge the ex-wife isn't making timely payments and thus not keeping the terms, and he should ask the court to enforce it. There is no way he should just tolerate bad credit until the loan is maybe paid off. A divorce decree is not set in stone forever, especially when there are lousy terms, and that's from Rebecca. Rebecca, your point is well taken that uh, reopening the divorce case because of the failure of his ex-wife to live to the terms of the divorce agreement potentially could help with a sanction from the judge or action by the judge, but it still doesn't remove the bad credit from his credit report. The fact that she defaulted on the loan payments, the loan payments were late, 
that stays with him regardless of what the divorce decree says. And here's the reason the credit reporting industry does it this way is the original loan was in his name. That was who the lender made the loan to. Regardless of what action happens in divorce court, the credit reporting system continues to report based on who contractually originally took out the loan, regardless of what happened later as an example in a civil action like a divorce. But your point of him going back to the divorce attorney and seeing if there's a valuable action to take in court about the ex-wife's failure, that is really good advice that I should have said. Your food expiration advice should have included the information that half and half milk and organic milk are ultra pasteurized and last longer in the refrigerator. We never have to throw away our sour milk, Steve. Are you aware of that? I'm not familiar I, with well, that. Well, I've always bought the organic milk for my kids, and, and I always noticed that, that the expiration dates were actually like way further out normally than regular milk. But he's sure saying why. even beyond even that. Even beyond it, yeah. I don't know, so. because my kids drank it so fast. Oh, do they really? <laughs> my son does. Oh, my gosh. Okay, here's another one. Please do not cop an attitude when discussing how wonderful your electric vehicle is versus those of us who choose to drive a gasoline-driven car. Not all of us are inconvenienced by gas prices. I live in rural USA. The gas prices were worse in 2008. We all survived. We will survive this, too. We don't need to hear how wonderful your electric things are. Stop bragging, Claire. Claire, thank you. Um there's a real question at what point in the future electric vehicles will be practical in rural America. The charging infrastructure is not there and bragging about electric. I just believe that electric is much better for our nation's defense, for homeland security, where we're not dependent on a single source of fuel as we're moving into an era it's going to be more dicey for the world with so many countries that wish us harm. You recently had a question from a listener about how to get a medical provider to bill their insurance company. You should have told them that if they can't get the provider to bill the insurance, they should obtain a claim form from the insurer and submit the claim themselves. They may or may not need to pay the provider while waiting the claim payment, but at least the insurer will begin processing the claim, Rick. Gosh, that's a blast from the past. I haven't thought about that. That's really a great suggestion, Rick, because years ago, that's what you used to have to do. You had to fill out a paper claim form with the bill from the doctor and submit it to insurance and hope nothing got separated when it got to the processing center. I never thought about that. And now you can, I do have to do this with a couple of providers and our insurance company actually has a way for me to do it online by scanning in the bill, so... I don't have to worry about the mail anymore. Hopefully most of them do that. Here's the next one. I just can't take it anymore. You constantly talk about how Amazon is pretty much only for convenience and doesn't have the best prices. I'm a very frugal person. I price check almost everything I buy. And Amazon consistently has the better prices on a very large portion of what I purchase. Everything from electronics to dog treats. I live in a household that has both Amazon Prime and Walmart Plus, and I'm finding the better prices through Amazon probably four out of five times on everything but groceries. 
For groceries, I shop at Aldi, Walmart, Kroger, Sam's, and Costco. Each one has its benefits, but I do agree Amazon is mostly more expensive for groceries. Everything else around the home and the office, though, it's almost always the same or better price. Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you for that. And I'm really impressed at how you do your comparison shopping. And I'm going to be interested in feedback from others about Amazon. And I appreciate that you have found that four out of five times Amazon is the same or cheaper than other people. I have not found that. I mean, we may buy different things. I have not found that necessarily to be the case. Your advice to bypass your employer's HSA option to go with another provider's HSA was really short-sighted. When you contribute to an HSA through payroll deduction, you not only save on income taxes, but you also don't pay Social Security or Medicare taxes. If you go with another provider, you only get the income tax savings. Brian. Brian, thank you. And this is such a tough one because that is a wonderful savings And at the same time, the HSA choices, a lot of employers don't really know how to shop for these HSA plans. And the choices people end up with are really rotten, terrible, with very poor investment choices and very high fees. And so it is a point well taken. I don't know what to do about this. And the suggestion somebody gave before is that you move money over time out is you're allowed to out of the employer high cost HSA to one of the low costs like Fidelity or Vanguard and have your HSA at one of them. And a lot of people buy inertia once the money goes in to the HSA they have, they might intend to move it to a low cost plan, but they might not get around to it. And this is a tough dilemma, but I appreciate you sharing that. Clark advised a parent who was concerned about their child traveling with a debit card that they didn't need to take money out of their USAA bank account to protect it from potential fraud. He then went on to say that any fraudulent activity would be reimbursed. On many other shows, I've heard Clark say that the debit card is a piece of trash. A piece of trash, fake Visa or fake MasterCard, (laughs) yes. Because of the pain involved with just this same type of situation. So which is it, Clark? Jason. Jason, it is what you've heard me say in the past. In the case of this situation with the parent, the child traveling abroad, I was looking for the least difficult option to avoid the costs involved and be able to provide money for the child traveling. And so, gosh, the easiest, best way would be to keep only enough money in that account that the child was going to need for the trip. And then the amount of money that you have to fight with, in this case, USAA, Federal Savings Bank, to get back in your account would not be as much money that's missing from your life at the time. Your social security number 00 hack is genius. I, however, have been using the social security number 07805-1120, which coincidentally is the single most stolen social security number in history. In 1938, wallet manufacturer, the E.H. Ferre Company in Lockport, New York, decided to promote its product by showing how a social security card would fit into its wallets. A sample card used for display purposes was inserted in each wallet. Company vice president and treasurer Douglas Patterson thought it would be a clever idea to use the actual social security number of his secretary, Mrs. Hilda Schrader Witcher. 
Fun fact, I cannot remember my own social security number as fast as I can remember this one as I use it on everything. John. Okay, that is a wild story. Never heard from anybody. And John, I appreciate the history and that all right, zero seven eight oh five one one two zero. Poor Hilda. Yeah. Well, Hilda's gone to the great I beyond know, but- by now. So Wow, what an interesting idea because giving people your actual real social security number when they say they won't do business with you, but there's no legitimate business reason or purpose for them to have it. And the suggestion I've given in the past was reckless about just making one up because that could cause problems for people. So you've given a suggestion that works, the two middle digits being zero, zero, that works, just whatever. Remember this, never, 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 not ever, without exception, never give a doctor's office, a lab, or a hospital, or a surgery center on their forms your social security number. The medical industry accounts for the majority of identity theft in the United States, and as a general rule as an industry, has the worst possible security over their records and that's why you don't list a social security number ever for anybody in the medical field period next week's clark stinks will be a doctor's office doctors only yeah we 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 hear from the doctors regularly that i'm trying to help people beat them out of the money for bills they owe that's not what i'm trying to do i'm trying to protect people from identity theft. But go ahead, write that Clark Stinks at clark.com slash Clark Stinks. And I really, really want you to know I appreciate, think how many times in today's Clark Stinks, advice that I've given was missing a key component that someone helped put into the show and correct things I've said or done that were incomplete in class You would give me an I for some of the answers, and you help me get rid of that incomplete. I appreciate it. And how do you say gigantic? Gigantic. Did I still do it wrong? (laughs) Oh, man. I cannot hear sounds. You're you're in the right business. (laughs) What's the other one that I always mispronounce that people get upset with? Mint and mint, M-I-N-T. You say mint. Did I say it right? Nope. No? But there's another one. They're very similar. There's one that I finally have learned to say right that I really had to train myself. Antidote and anecdote. Mm Mm-hmm. Antidote versus anecdote. Antidote versus ant. Why did I even say I could do it right? Okay. (laughs) Straight ahead. I want to talk about how to handle the stock market cycle that is coming. Not the one that just seems to have calmed down, but what is coming ahead, what you should be about. And then I want to talk about where you should park your money moving forward. Stock market went through quite a tumble earlier when Russia invaded Ukraine. A lot of The stock markets have been really overvalued by historical measures. Price for perfection. The world doesn't have perfection right now. But then the markets have recovered 
most of that. But it is my belief that we have not dodged the stock market decline that I believe is coming. That we are going to have a reversion to mean where values are going to get to be more realistic with stocks. We're going to have rising interest rates, and that generally isn't great for stock markets anyway. So does that mean I've sold anything? Not a thing. Not a thing. Why? Because I don't have to have that money to live on for years to come. I have the equivalent of a cash reserve, plus I still earn money, and so I'm not worried about what happens with the market now. I'm not worried about what happens this year. I'm not worried about next year. That the idea is that the real money is made if you're diversified and you use time as your friend, time as your ally, and you don't have money in the stock market you need immediately or not too far in the future. I'm not talking about having money in the market because you're having to spend money over time. I'm talking about money that you need to pay next month's rent or mortgage is not supposed to be invested in stocks. You have to have diversified sources of money. Right now, what is that? Well, I had a a question during Clark Stinks about the I-bonds, series I-savings bonds, and I want to go back to those in a second. Right now, people have trillions of dollars collectively as Americans sitting in bank savings accounts earning basically 0%. The banks are paying nothing. They're begging you by paying nothing to have you take your money somewhere else. Well, as the Federal Reserve keeps doing things to tighten the money supply, raise interest rates, what's going to happen is that for the first time in a long time, money market mutual funds, money market funds, not at a bank, but at a stockbroker or a mutual fund company, they're going to be a good place, again, to stash your cash. Because the rates they pay are going to go up over time because a lot of that money is used to lend money to companies or municipal money market to governments. And so the money that is in one of those right now, also like a bank savings account, is earning like nothing. But as the Federal Reserve keeps doing its stuff that they're going to keep doing to try to get this ugly inflation out of the economy, part they can do not related to supply chain, is that they put too much money in in 20 and 21, and now they've got to reverse that. So that means what you can earn on your money if you follow into price-sensitive things like a money market mutual fund, that you are going to see that that interest rate is going to go up. It would have to be one of the most unusual circumstances ever if that crystal ball of mine is wrong about that. But the other one doesn't require a crystal ball. And it goes back to wanting an explanation about the Series I savings bonds. You're allowed to put up to $10,000 a year per family member into Series I savings bonds. And because 
I is for inflation, and you're paid based on a not very well-known index for inflation, but you get, I think they use CPI-U, maybe the one they use for I-bonds. Anyway, you get the rate of inflation generally in the economy paid to you at an annual interest rate that resets every six months. As inflation has gone up, what people earn goes up. When inflation comes back down, what you earn goes down. These are very flexible instruments, again, limited to $10,000 per person per year when you buy them electronically. And the interest rate is one that is yours to keep as long as you hold them five years or longer. You can hold them a maximum of 30 years, as I said earlier during Clark Stinks. But you only have to hold them a minimum of a year, but then you suffer an interest rate penalty. And you don't want to do that right now because the interest is so interesting right now. If you go to savingsbonds.gov, you can see a full explanation of Series I savings bonds, how you buy them, how you hold them, how you own them electronically, how the interest rate is set, what you need to know to own them. I have owned these for 24 years is when I first bought them. And they've been a great holding for savings in years when inflation was really low, not as great. But normally a Series I savings bond, as I mentioned briefly earlier, carries two rates of interest. One, a breathing rate, and two, the inflation rate. But right now, Series I bonds are so much better than other places you can stash up to $10,000 in a year that you're getting 0% as a breathing rate, zero. So all you're getting is the inflation rate. But right now, that's better than what you can get anywhere else. Krista? Okay, Clark, we'll start with this question from Eric in Pennsylvania. We may soon be returning to the U.S. after living the last 12 years overseas, Italy, Hong Kong, Netherlands, Switzerland. We aren't 100% sure where we will move, but we are certain that we would like to buy a new home within the first one to two years after we arrive. We will return with approximately $200,000 in cash for a down payment. Wow. Wow. What should we do with this cash for the one to two years until we need it for a down payment? So in your case, this dovetails exactly with what I said. The holding period you have of one to two years, you could... Uh, go straight into a money market mutual fund and put the money in there. Uh, The usual suspects are Vanguard, Schwab, and Fidelity for those. See who's got the lowest um, management fee on theirs and put your money in that. If you want to take a little more risk with at least part of that $200,000, you could put it in what's known as an ultra-short bond fund. An ultra-short is one that as interest rates rise, you stand a chance of losing some value, at least temporarily, of the account, but you'll earn a higher rate of interest than you would on a straight money market. Money markets are set at a fixed share price, so all you get is you get the money back you put in and the interest you earn. An ultra-short that, again, all three of these big players sell, with an ultra-short, what happens is the value of your holding changes each day. But because you're earning a higher interest rate with a one to two year holding period, 
even in a time of rising interest rates, you stand a potential to earn more on the money in an ultra short. What someone might do who's uh, very careful with their money is they might do half of it in a, a money market mutual fund and the other half in an ultra short. But if you'd really feel terrible if the money you put in the ultra short could potentially in a year or two be less worth, worth less than what you put in, and that would freak you out, wouldn't be a lot, but it could be worth less than just go straight money market mutual fund for that one to two year period. And this is from Matt in New Hampshire. Clark, I'm building up my emergency savings. Is it safe slash a good idea to have my savings at the same bank as my primary checking? They are separate accounts, but I'm curious if it's better to keep my emergency savings at a different bank. There's a direct advantage, Matt, to putting your emergency savings at a different financial institution because so many banks now, if something happened, let's say somebody hacked into your checking account and they remove all the money from it. At most banks now, you have signed an agreement, agreed to terms, where they then can go into whatever other money you have with them, like your savings account, move it across, and you lose that too. And this is such a common bank practice now that I think there's great value in having your emergency savings at a different institution, preferably an online bank, because they tend to pay much higher rates of interest on a savings account than you'd earn at a traditional bank. And maybe a little bonus for opening the account. You never know. That is true. A lot of institutions are offering these bonuses for opening an account. I don't know why they're doing it right now in savings, because banks have more money in savings than they know what to do with right now. This is from Bev in North Carolina. Not specifically a financial question, but Alzheimer's certainly affects family finances. I see ads for Alzheimer's studies, and since I have a strong familial history, I'm considering applying to one. Do you have an opinion, advice, or warnings on joining a study like this? So, Bev, the biggest concern I have with any of these, and it's why some of the ones that have been offered by 23andMe I have passed on, is because the question is, who has access to the data? Who sees the information? Are insurance companies able to see it at some point? And so you want to know what are the privacy rails around being in one of these studies. Alzheimer's is one that we should benefit enormously from the research that's going on. So it's really important that people be part of the research. But the question is, is the data anonymized? Is that how you said that word? Made anonymous? Mm -hmm. Or is it data that comes straight back to you that at some point would be in some database that someone might be able to see someday? So that's what's really important to me is that your privacy and your personal information be protected. What you're doing is of great benefit to society I don't want you to be harmed by participating in a study where you're trying to help others that you cause harm to yourself. And this is an area where we need clearer rules. I mean, we've had these situations with the various apps where they've gone bust and they've had very sensitive information. And then the bankruptcy court has allowed them to sell off people's personal 
identifiable information. I mean, that's really creepy, terrible. And with the medical studies, it should be absolutely firm that that information is never available to insurance companies of any type to use it to discriminate against you. And Bev, you point out something so important. Every day must be valued. Every day. We don't know how much time we have on earth. We don't know if we're going to be stricken with a disease where we lose mental capabilities. Please treasure every day. Know how wonderful it is, the lives that we're able to have on this wonderful planet. And enjoy them. <laughs>